So, so what, do you, what do you think of uh, when you hear the word idol? What comes to mind? Take a look at the picture here. This is a, a picture of uh, Baal, who was one of the false gods that, that many people worshipped in ancient in the time of ancient Israel. This is a figurine, a bronze little statue that was probably made somewhere in the 12th century uh, BC. What is an idol? Uh, by definition, an idol is uh, an image or representation of a false god. So Baal is, represents a false god. The, the idol itself is not God, but it represents a false god. And false gods simply represented the things that all people always cared about. So, for example, Baal was lord or owner of weather and of fertility. If we move forward to Paul's time, a lot of the Greek gods, you had uh, Poseidon, who was god of the sea and of other waters. You had Aphrodite, who was goddess of love beauty and pleasure you had Athena who was goddess of wisdom Apollo goddess of music art and medicine and and many others and people didn't so much care about the figurines or the statues themselves but as much as they cared about what they represented if you wanted to travel well on the seas then uh, you would want to check to make sure you paid homage to Poseidon. If you want to make sure that um, your health was good, then you wanted to make sure you were up to date on your contributions to the temple of Apollo. No one starts off saying, I really feel like bowing down to this wooden figurine today. All right, you start off by saying, I really, ha- I really hope I have a safe journey, or I really hope that this business venture goes well. And then the question is, who or what can help me do that? And and those are the false gods. Those are the idols. And so a good study group question, for those of you that discuss the sermon in the next week, is um, what are considered the idols of our day in our culture? And I'll, I'll leave that for you to think about and discuss As we look at this morning's passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is warning us about the dangers of idolatry or worshiping false gods. And as we get into it, I want us to unpack what it means to be tempted to worship false gods. What does it mean to be tempted to commit idolatry? And and in so doing, I hope we'll have a better idea of what idolatry is and, and why it's dangerous. So the message this morning is titled, Danger, Falling for Idols. And a summary of the outline is, I want to break it into three parts that deal with temptations uh, in falling for idols. The first is um, part one, types of temptations. And part two is going to cover the tragedy of temptations. And then part three is going to cover the triumph over temptation. 
part one, types of temptation, the, the, the question that I want to start with is, why, why is this written down for us? And, and we actually, Paul answers that in verse 11. He says, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And he's referencing the first part of the passage where he goes through this history of what happened to Israel, specifically as they were being delivered from Egypt uh, by God's hand. And the first type of temptation that I want to cover is impatience. Impatience. And this reference comes from verses 6 through 7 uh, of our passage today. Paul writes, These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did as the scriptures say the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry now that last part is a quote from exodus and and it, and it happened it, it references the situation where uh, israel got impatient and so i want to read that uh, so we can know exactly what paul is referring to so uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 32, or if you have an app, uh, just navigate there, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from your ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. That's the quote that Paul is referencing in the, book of, in the letter to the Corinthians. impatience Moses was gone too long and they started to get tired of waiting they wanted to make up their own gods who led them out of Egypt have you ever felt like God was taking too long to answer have you ever felt like God had stepped out of the room and you weren't sure if he was coming back what do you do when you feel like that? You can choose to believe that God is still there for you and wait on Him. Or, like the people of Israel, you can believe that God has disappeared permanently. I remember uh, as a kid when, when my mom uh, first started to leave us alone. First it was like 10 minutes. And then it was like... 30 minutes and then it was an hour and then it was multiple hours and I remember many times as a kid crying wondering is my mom going to come back 
Has she gone for good this time? And what was only 30 minutes seemed like hours. And what was hours seemed like days. And in, my, in the immaturity of my heart, I didn't understand that she was going to come back. I wondered. I cried, and she came back. I was like, oh. And I wonder if we do the same thing with God. It seems at a moment in our time that God has stepped out of the room, and we wonder, is God still there? Does he still care about me? The point here is when God is apparently absent, there is a temptation to think that his absence or his silence has become permanent. Where has God been silent for you? What room of your life has God stepped out of? Is it waiting for a spouse? Is it a new job with better pay? A better living situation? Keep in mind that, that Israel, the, the story in, in Exodus, Israel's basically homeless. So they're delivered from oppression, they're delivered from slavery, but now they're in the wilderness and they're essentially homeless. They're, they're nomads, they're, they're wandering. They've been miraculously delivered, but now they're in a situation that is sort of temporary and impermanent and, and at best less than ideal. And God never promises that we won't go through the wilderness. He does promise that He'll be there with us even when He seems silent for a period of time. That's the first type of temptation, impatience. We, we, we grow tired of waiting on God, on God's deliverance. The second type is desires of the eyes. And, and, and where I'm getting that from is, is verse 8. If we go back to our passage in Corinthians. Verse 8, chapter 10. We must, and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. And again, Paul is referencing a very specific event. And that event occurred in Numbers chapter 25. So if you'll turn with me there, we're going to read that story. I think it'll also be up on the screen. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with the local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. Desires of the eyes. This is all about something or someone that attracts the attention of your eye. Oftentimes, this is physical beauty in the sense of sexual temptation. But it could just as well apply to food or some other sensual pleasure that draws us in. For example, the Garden, Garden of Eden, where it was a piece of fruit that was the object of temptation. It's not the object of the eye's desire that's necessarily what's wrong. It's the rebellion against God that makes it immoral. 
And if we go to, back to the story in, in Numbers, let's not get confused about what's happening here. This is not God getting in the way of true love with foreign women. That's, this is not the story. The story is there are some Jewish men seeing hot women from another country, and they want to hook up. That's what it is. That's what's going on in the passage. And this has happened for thousands of years and continues to happen to this day. It's interesting, as uh, Stephanie and I were doing research for our trip to Greece last fall, um, we were going to look at, we were torn between two islands, Naxos and Mykonos. And as we were doing research, it became very apparent that Mykonos was sort of had a reputation. And that reputation was like as a party island. This is the island you go to if you're single and you want to mingle with women from all over the world, or men from all over the world. That's kind of the reputation that made us decide for Naxos. We wanted something more relaxing and more couple-friendly. And so even today, that idea, you go to a strange place to meet different people uh, and, and to be enticed in that way still exists. So that's what was going on as Israel runs into these local Moabite women. However, it's, it's not even the hooking up, per se, that God is most angry about. It, it is wrong. He says that, that the, the Israeli men, they defile themselves in doing that. But it says God's anger is kindled when they begin joining in the worship of their God, the local uh, Moabite women's God, which was Baal. That's when God's anger is kindled. And... Uh, Baal was typically associated with, uh, uh, with weather, uh, storms and rain, and also fertility. And so it, it makes sense that these sexually immoral acts were, were connected to the worship of Baal as it relates to his lordship over fertility. Now let's think about this. What was really attractive about Baal? Was it that the Jewish men were walking along in the wilderness and they came upon a statue of Baal and they said, oh, we want to bow down to Baal? Was that what was attractive? I don't think so. It says that they came upon Moab and they saw the women. That's what they were attracted to. And in so doing, then they started worshiping their God. We might think today, who would enjoy sitting at home bowing down to a Barbie doll or bowing down to the Nutcracker? Right? That, that does not sound interesting to me. But if you knew that bowing down to a Barbie doll united you with a crowd of people, with a community that, where all of your sensual desires could be fulfilled then all of a sudden, there's a lure there because of what you get in bowing down to the Nutcracker or Barbie. It's not so much the figurine itself, it's what comes with it that is attractive. That's how people thought about idolatry. Sure, some people probably really believe that the figurine had some magical powers, but what they really wanted was what those what they represented, what they were lord over, the things that we care about, relationships, jobs, living situation, 
health, right? Those are the things we care about. And if these gods can help us get that, then I'm bowing down all day long. That's idolatry. That's what worshiping false gods is. Desires of the eyes. That's the second type of temptation. The third type, difficult circumstances. And this is referenced in verses 9 through 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These, again, are referencing specific incidents in Israel's history. And I'll just go to one of them. There are several times where the people of Israel grumbled and complained uh, because of their perceived hardships. Uh, One of those was in Numbers chapter 21, and so we'll look at that. Numbers chapter 21 and verses 1 through, or actually just, uh, I think, starting in verse 4. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. And then the Lord sends poisonous snakes in verse 6, so that's the reference to the snake bites. Um, God apparently wasn't very happy with that. And it's interesting what the people of Israel are doing because they're saying there's no food to eat here and there's no drink. The first question, is that true? Number one, there's manna. God's been raining down manna from heaven every single day. Six days a week. On the seventh day, the sixth day there's double and so they have what they need for the seventh day. And just just a few verses before this, Israel complains that there's no water to drink. Apparently it's scarce, so Moses pleads with God, and God says, okay, this rock, go command the rock to pour forth water, and so he takes the staff, he hits the rock, and water comes out, and they have water to drink. So that's the the supernatural provision of God, both in terms of food and in terms of drink. And yet, here in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 21, they're saying there is no food, and there is no drink, and we hate this manna. It's just complaining. It's grumbling. It's, it's despising the God who's actually providing for them every day through this wilderness. Yes, the wilderness is not ideal. Yes, the wilderness is objectively more difficult than perhaps the land that God is taking them to. Sometimes difficult circumstances are more about our perspective than the objective truth of the situation. I don't know how many people you've, you know who are just complainers. Like they tell you about their situation, they complain about it, you, you listen to the situation, and it's like, eh, that's not that bad. Dealing with this recently in my family. It's sad but it's a perspective, it's a, it's a lens that some people have where no matter what's going on, they're, they're able to see all the bad things, and all the bad things is all they see. 
And that's what's happening with Israel, that there, yeah, there's some bad things, but they can't see that God is actually there with them. And so the temptation is to, in your grumbling, in your complaining, to seek another way, to seek another provider, to seek someone who would change your circumstances right now and in the way you want it to be changed. Maybe this is you this morning. You don't like your job. You don't like your family. You don't like your body or your looks. You don't like your financial situation. You don't like your husband or your wife. You don't like the fact that you don't have a husband or a wife. Whatever it is, you feel like right now you're in the wilderness and you don't like it and you're grumbling, maybe not outward, but in your heart, you're grumbling. In all these things, what is happening is a temptation to put God aside and replace him with another God. That's what idolatry is about. It doesn't necessarily require some figurine that you're bowing down to. When you lose patience, you're looking to someone or something else for direction in life. When you pursue what's forbidden, you're saying that it's actually more desirable to have that than to have God. And when you grumble at your circumstances and despise even what God has done to sustain you, you're looking for a way forward apart from God. All these responses are idolatry. We've sought in our heart to replace the one true God with an image or a representation of a false God. There's a great tragedy. There's a great tragedy that's built in to these types of temptations. And that brings me to part two, the tragedy of temptation. The first tragedy of these temptations is that Paul is connecting this to God's people. Paul's not talking about wild, uneducated, superstitious people out in the jungle who could think of nothing better to, to do than to bow down to idols. Like, that's not who Paul's talking about. He's, he's writing this to the church. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. We're the ones who struggle with bowing down to idols. This is not just for the savages out there in the jungle. This is for us civilized people who have all the privileges in our society, all the education, all the intellect to be able to discern what's right and what's wrong. This is for us. And Paul writes in verse 12, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. Imagine there's waterfalls of idols bombarding us daily. And, and truthfully, we don't even need to imagine because you just need to look around you. Every day, there is something or someone beckoning you to show you a better way apart from God. Some shiny new thing is always calling for your attention, trying to distract you away from God. The Lord. 
just like the toddler who sees something bright and glowing and dancing and, and, and attracted to it and thinks, surely this must be good. Not knowing in his or her immaturity that this is a fire that, if, if she's not careful, would consume her. You see, salvation is not merely experiencing God's provision, his presence, and his guidance. The, the point that Paul is clearly making in verses 1 through 4 of our current passage, um, the people of Israel all together experience God's provision, his guidance, his uh, presence. All the people walk through the Red Sea. All the people ate from the manna. All the people drank from a rock that spit out water. All the people were watched over by God's cloud and His pillar of fire. They were all experiencing God's provision and grace daily. And yet, the Scripture records that many of them turned to false gods. Their experiences didn't save them. What was in their hearts actually mattered. Paul was warning the Corinthians that they were on the verge of repeating the same mistakes. In verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. He, he references uh, communion, uh, which is where, where we drink wine or juice in remembrance of the blood of Christ shed. We partake of bread in remembrance of his body that was broken for our sins. And, and in so doing, we declare that we are part of this family together with Jesus. We are united as one. We've experienced the grace of God in our lives, and, and communion is a way of celebrating that remembrance. And yet, many of them still think, the Corinthians still think, they can participate in the pagan ceremonies of their day where food is sacrificed to idols. Paul is still addressing this issue so he addressed it in chapter 8 he's addressing it now he's going to address it some more in this passage but this was a really important thing in their day it was cultural they were corinthians this is what corinthians do we participate we celebrate the pagan gods we celebrate aphrodite and apollo and athena and poseidon and they invite you to their homes to eat in celebration of those gods. Paul is saying, be careful. If you, if you think you're strong, be careful that you don't fall. It's not that idols or food offered to idols have any significance or power in and of themselves, Paul argues. But he says this very curious thing. He says in verse 19, these sacrifices are offered to demons. 
In other words, Paul traces all idolatry, all worship of false gods to demonic forces. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail about what demons are. He doesn't offer a course in demonology, and, and, and sorry to, to bum you out, but I'm not going to do that this morning either. But what is clear is that idolatry and the worship of false gods is not a merely secular experience. It's spiritual. There are spiritual forces out there that are not friendly towards God, that are not friendly towards us, and would want to see us destroyed, and would want to see us by any means possible to be distracted from the one who really does love us, and the one who really does care for us. If all they can do is serve to distract you, they will. Even if that means giving you temporarily relief from your wilderness and from your circumstances that you want to change. Paul writes in the second letter to Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. And it's tragic that in Paul's time and, and even today, there are people in the church that experience God's provision, his presence, and his guidance that partake of communion in remembrance of what God has did and yet at the same, at the same time uh, drink the cup of demons, as Paul writes, and partake of the table of demons. How so? You despise him in your impatience. You despise him in your complaining. You despise him in your adultery. You despise him in when your eyes are enticed by promises of fulfillment that are apart from God. In short, we can take comfort that somehow our doing church has made us strong but in our hearts we really desire evil Paul concludes this passage with a rhetorical question in verse 22 he says what do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy do you think we are stronger than he is did you know that the Lord can be jealous? I'm not talking about the type of jealousy that exists between rivals. I'm not talking about envy. But I'm talking about the type of jealousy that a husband has, has if his wife is seduced by another man. This jealousy is anger. But it's motivated by love. A man who loves his wife will be jealous if something or someone threatens to break that covenant. A woman who loves her husband will be jealous if something or someone takes his heart away from her. Whether that be another woman or a job 
or a hobby. She will be jealous if it takes his heart away from her. And this is right. If, if we love our spouses, we will be jealous if something threatens to interrupt that. And this is the way in which God is jealous. A false god threatens to distract us from his love, to take our hearts away from his love. And God says, I'm jealous, not because he doesn't care, but precisely because he does care. God is a jealous God. And so what are we to do, what are we to do in the face of such, such strong temptation? What are we to do if we've already become impatient? What are we to do if we're already placing our trust in, in something that, that we can fulfill with the desires of our eyes? What are we to do if our heart is already discontent and grumbling? Is there hope? And Paul, Paul answers this with an emphatic yes. There is hope in the midst of temptation. And so this brings me to part three, which is the triumph over temptation. And the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus, Jesus is at work even before he's born. Jesus is at work even before he's born. Uh, let, me, let me show you what I mean. Verse 2 of chapter 10. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. We also see, he says in verse 9, that, that they were putting Christ to the test. And so even before Jesus was born, Paul saw that Jesus was with the people of Israel in Moses' day. And what was Jesus doing? He was giving them water to live on. In other words, he was, he was sustaining them in the wilderness. In other words, he was their salvation even before he came to die to be our salvation. Jesus is in the same business yesterday, today, and in the future. He's in the business of saving. And, and what, but what's different between now and then is then it was incomplete. It was imperfect. It was a shadow of the salvation that God was bringing about. But what's happened since is that Jesus chose to incarnate in flesh to become like us. A man experiencing all the same temptations that we go through and live a perfect life and voluntarily lay down his life on the cross to achieve the ultimate salvation, to achieve the permanent salvation, to achieve the complete salvation, to achieve the whole salvation that will never end. That's what Jesus chose to do. And so now at this point, we can look to Jesus in the face of temptation and trust in him. Paul says in verse 13 of Corinthians, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. We have a hope that's in God. 
And now we have a high priest who's experienced everything just as we are. And, and if you'll go with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, and yet did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Did Jesus ever feel like God left the room? On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was Jesus ever tempted with the desires of his eyes? Satan brought him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and promised, I will give all this to you if only you will bow down to me. Was Jesus ever deeply troubled by his circumstances? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was preparing to die and as he was sweating drops of blood, cried out to God, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He was clearly troubled by his circumstances. He was tested and tempted in every way as we are. The same things that we struggle with are the same things that Jesus struggled with, yet without sin. And because he made it to the other side, rose from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father and has given us His Holy Spirit. He is there with us in the midst of the wilderness. He doesn't promise to take the wilderness from us right when we want it to. But He's there with us for the period, for the season that we're in it. It's not forever. If you go back to the story of Moses... God doesn't say, you're destined for the wilderness. He says, trust me, I'm leading you somewhere. Just keep following. We're going somewhere. It's moving somewhere. There's a place that's flowing with milk and honey. There's a place where you'll find rest. There's a place where you'll be at home. And I'm proving every step of the way that in the midst of what's hard, I'm there with you. And in a very real sense, in a tangible sense, Jesus was here with us. He experiences what we've experienced. And now we can cry out to God and say, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm struggling with these circumstances. I'm frustrated. I'm impatient. But Lord, you went through it too. Help me. Give me strength. See me through this. And the biggest difference between true God and false gods is this. Idols don't love you back. Jesus loves you back. You may not get exactly what you want when you want it at the moment that you're asking for it, but what he gives you that no other false God can give you is he gives you himself. He's there with you. Idols might give you a momentary distraction, but they do not love you. Jesus does. And I pray that we would grab hold of that truth this morning. He is our Lord and Savior. 
We have a relationship with him. That's the beauty. That's the value of what we have with God. Not stuff, not material things. But there is an end to the wilderness. And we know that because he loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. Let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would, Lord, that you would uh, help us. Lord, you know what we're struggling. You know what each and every person in here is struggling with. You care about the big things. You care about the small things. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us where we're at. If we have had a grumbling heart or a complaining heart, Lord, I pray that you would uh, implore us to seek you, that we would get on our knees and we would, we would come to you again in faith and we would remember the things that you've done in the past and we would apply it to our lives and we would, you would cause us to be thankful. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to, to know the great expanse of the love with which you loved us. And Father, I, I, I pray, Lord, that those who are struggling through very hard things, major sicknesses, major financial issues, Lord, would you be with those this morning that are struggling through those things? Would you bring your church alongside to walk with them, to mourn with them, to, to pray with them. Lord, would we as a community seek you in these times of need? And Father, in the midst, would, we, would you fill us with joy in your presence, with a hope that surpasses all understanding? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, at this time... So I mentioned uh, the celebration, the solemn remembrance of, of what Jesus has done. We, we celebrate together, uh, and we have bread and, and wine or 